everybody, it's your boy Poolhouse coming back at you on a rather rainy Wednesday afternoon here at the edge of Western civilization on the West Coast. It's a pleasure to be back with you with another installment of Backlash, The Unsilencing. The Unsilencing is my series uh, about surfacing lost and forgotten voices of the HIV AIDS era, particularly pointing towards alternative theories of what really happened with that crisis, where that virus came from, and, and challenging the official timeline that is presented to us by the CDC and NIH. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the intro because I'm excited for you to hear our guest story today, but I do want to remind you, if you have not heard the initial episodes, please head over to backlash.substack.com, go over to the unsilencing tab at the top, and you can hear the previous episodes, which includes uh, Nick's presentation on Here Comes the Backlash, that kind of kicked things off for this journey. Ed, the first eyewitnesses story uh, beginning in 1978 in Wichita, but really following his adventures and journeys as, as a man growing up in the face of AIDS and HIV. Really grateful for Ed and his story and the response to the episode has been so tremendous. So thank you all for just your expressions of heartfelt positivity and sharing how much you were impacted by Ed's story. It was really, really special. There's also the episode on the Strecker Memorandum that I put together. It's unlike anything else really I've done, and it's what I called a wiki-sode, just detailing the HIV lab origin from the perspective of the Streckers, who put together uh, a document in the 80s that outlined their theory. You know, curiously, according to Substag, zero listens on that particular episode. They tell me that they're unable to find any data on it, which I find rather interesting, as I've definitely listened to it, but, you know, curious that but i definitely encourage you to help me get the word out about this program if you're enjoying it and if you think other people will benefit from it we cannot rely on the regular channels uh, like algorithms and uh, social media really to surface this information it has to be kind of shared at a word-to-mouth basis unfortunately because of the censorship that really impacts everything i do but especially on the subject of hiv lab origin I want to give a huge shout out, uh, as always, to Nick Petoskey, who is my inspiration and, and collaborator and just uh, an incredible and very uh, kind and, and thoughtful individual who I have the pleasure and privilege of sharing time and, and space with in this interview. Nick, thank you for your time and your dedication to this, for your patience with me. I'm grateful and, and indebted to you. I'm excited to take us all now back we're going to hear from Tony. And Tony's story is a story to me that transcends HIV and AIDS, to be perfectly honest. It's a story of survival, and it's a story with lessons that I uh, can apply to everyone uh, in life for any situation where survival is imperative. So let's go ahead and meet Tony, get inside the backlash time machine, and we will set our sights on 1970s New York City. Let's go.
if I may. Um, welcome back, everybody. We're very grateful um, today to be joined by uh, one of our brothers in arms, uh, and Tony is joining us from the East Coast. Um, and so this is a continuation of our discussions on the era of the late 1970s and the men's national hepatitis B study conducted by the NIAID. And we've been very lucky to have some discussions previously with Ed, who had an experience in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, and then today we're gonna hear about someone who uh, grew up and and uh, lived his most of his life in the New York area, is in a definite New York state of mind. So welcome Poolhouse and Tony. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Welcome. What we have uh, really before us is a whole lot of, of good sort of bits and pieces of the anthropology of the time. Um, and we're going to really talk about the human experience of what occurred during the initial wave of this New York hepatitis B study. So I'd like to just open with that um, topic and say, Tony, uh, what would you like to share with us? What comes to mind about the era um, that people today in, in thinking of what people have just gone through with uh, COVID and vaccinations and all of the changes in public health, uh, what do you think is important to uh, help people bring their minds and their hearts back to 1978 New York? Well, I, I would say right away, it's the difference between talky movies and silent movies. You know, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was the silent movies. It was, it, it was ignorance to technology. It was ignorance. I mean, half the population wasn't even sure what a vaccine was or they weren't sure what the difference between a virus and bacteria was. Most of us didn't know. I mean, that was still a time where people left food out on their counter for four days and ate it. It was a time where, you know, and I can remember thinking because I, ne I never was necessarily with the time because I'm proud to say I was very well read. So I knew to, you can't leave a pork chop on your counter for four days. I'm sorry. So, so that's how ignorant we were. You had to go to a library to get information or be in school. And after that, you were just learning stuff on the street. So you had to witness mm -hmm. somebody get sick on food. Really, it was that innocent. Or I think I'd mentioned to you when in a previous conversation, you know, you would go to weddings and people, everybody had cocaine and it was like the bride's mother had some cocaine. And I'd be like, what's going on here? And it was like, oh, it's, it was in Coca-Cola. You know, it was fine. And I could, you know, I could see that train wreck ahead of me coming, which what didn't take long for the, us to all realize how bad that was going to be. But there really was a time where people talked about it like, oh, it's just like having a martini, you know, very, very like ignorant. So I would say the difference was we were truly ignorant back then. I believe today when I hear people speaking and talking, I think they're willfully ignorant today because the access to the internet, the access to information, the access to even short articles of every opinion, you could read a 360 degree opinion on a virus or how it got there. It's all there, but people just, they willfully remain ignorant. And it seems worse now. I feel like the more information that's available, the less people avail themselves to it. 
Tony, do you feel like also nowadays we have so much information to your point that there's almost like a schizophrenia. There's so many different viewpoints and so many different uh, ways to approach like any situation or topic. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you feel like before the kind of this information age, there was more like uniformity in, in how people thought about certain topics like vaccines, for example? Oh, I could tell you, like on the subject of vaccines, it's close to my heart. My mother had polio when she was three months old. You know, she never she never walked. And it was very important to her to see that her children were vaccinated, you know, got vaccinated against the polio virus. And so our, my generation or, or the population at the time, we never questioned it because we saw that we didn't see people in crutches and wheelchairs and iron lungs anymore because of a vaccine. So that was our empirical evidence to look at. That was our observation. There was, you know, you lined up for it. Um, and, I'm sure there was a certain amount of innocence to that. That was maybe just again of the time. We didn't we didn't know to question anything. You never questioned authority. I mean, that white lab coat, whatever theory they have, you put on a white lab coat or something, people just trust you more or whatever. It was true. So I um I got off your question. No, it's perfectly okay. fine. Okay. Yeah. Also, there's a stream of consciousness there there because I brought you. I said. Does, how does it compare to the present? And and so, we, yeah, it was tra- like a hundred. You know what? I could say it was like everybody felt about a vaccine, like they felt about maybe hearing Barbara Streisand. Yeah, that's a good voice. Like nobody said mm-hmm. that was bad. It was just like uniformly thought. Well, people aren't crippled now. Okay, this is good. I never read about any side effects to any uh, vaccinations until really in the last couple of years. Maybe there was a one-off here and there. You might have read about something. But the media never covered, you know, I never turned on Channel 7 and heard about vaccinations being bad. Well, so, if you look if you look at the financial connections between pharmacology and major media brands, mm-hmm. the major networks, um, mm-hmm. it's ne- it's nepotistic. There's mm-hmm. there's no no question as to why you would never hear through what is originally um, a much more competitive and diverse field of voices to now these these sort of t- ivory towers. I have eat- one one caveat to that would be thalidomide. Mm-hmm. That was very much in the media. That was very much something that for my generation, like all the mothers were like, we dodged that bullet. It was too close to home. And that was, even to this day, discussed. Or, um, But that, I would say now, I'll take back what I said. So there was, that was probably the only one I can remember off the top of my head that was in the media and still is today. And the Cutter incident from Berkeley, 1955, that set us, unfortunately, into the primate virology era. Um, because of the use of the primates, we we took a huge turn and went racing forward towards a new product, that polio vaccination. You said your mother was so interested in having her children protected with. Um, that's that's a whole nother story. Um, so let's let's bring uh, the the ship back on the temporal line to um, the late 70s. And tell us what was life like in 1977? What was the apartment? What was the neighborhood? What was the routine? What, what clubs bring- did you go to? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I can, the early, the first earliest club I can remember because I always looked much older, carried myself much older. I got my first job at 13. I told him I was 18. 
uh, working at a country club. And now I was some 13, 14, 15, 16. Three years goes by. They think I'm 18, 19. They think I'm 21 years old and still a busboy. And they had an intervention to send me to college because I was wasting my life. And I was like, I'm in eighth grade. <laughs> so um, I always was mm, hanging out with all the crowds because I could pass for older. So the first club, first boyfriend I had at 17, like serious boyfriend. With, and when I say serious and at that point in time in my life i can't speak for anybody else but my life in 1977 i'm 16 17 years old uh, it was a big deal to kiss a guy you know it was, it was it was a more innocent time you know the only porno i'd ever seen was like playboy so you know so how much in my head did i have i didn't have any expectations except maybe mm-hmm. holding it but what i did like i and to this day is i could dance really well um, I loved music. I loved to have a drink in one hand, a cigarette in the other, and be on the dance floor harassing the DJ to play something better. Um, I can't say I was a club kid, but you know, we would go to this place called Feathers. Um, it was on the Upper West Side, and then I used to go to studio. I would go to the Regines. I would go. I went everywhere because what happened was I danced well and enough, and I was very vocal. Uh, in fact, I, one of the DJs, I, I started dating the DJs because I was always by the booth telling them, this sucks, put something else on. And uh, one day I'm walking up on the Upper West Side with uh, my boyfriend who's a DJ and uh, I hear him go, hey, Madonna. And um, now this is in the 70s. This was later on. So this was about 80. I'm skipping ahead. And I look and there's, it was Madonna who turned out to be. And I thought to myself, that's a made up name. And he talked to her a little bit and it was like, oh, nice. And he said to me, he goes, she's going to be something. He said, she's so pushy. She's going to be famous just because she's so pushy. And I thought that was interesting. Anyway, getting back to the 70s, there were a lot of clubs that nobody, I mean, if the drinking age was 18, but it really was like 15 Mm -hmm. (laughs) because nobody cared. Um, It was, people were extremely friendly because the gay scene was smaller it was friendlier. It was, um, it could be because I was young and hot. Maybe that's why it seemed friendlier to me. You know, I don't know, but it just seemed to me that now if I go out to the village, if I go somewhere, people are looking at their phones. Sidetrack here, I kind of knew things were over in about 1980 when Uncle Charlie's in the city put a video screen in. And I thought, and I walked in, and I saw everybody watching television instead of talking to each other. I went, oh, that's it. The party's over. That's when the party ended, when I, they put videos in. But getting back, and I, I went to the opening of, I don't know if you ever heard of The Saint. Oh, yes. We're familiar. <laughs> um, so now, my, again, my attitude, I kind of wasn't a typical guy at the time, or even now, but because I was, how can I put it? I have very, very bad vision. If I don't put my glasses on, I just see what's really like four inches in front of me. And I'm telling you something, life is beautiful. You don't see any of the ugliness. You don't see any. One time I went to a club with my glasses on. I was like, that couch is filthy. So I like to go out with the rose colored glasses. So mm-hmm. I kind of was trying to not see too much detail because I just wanted to have fun. I was young. And I remember walking into the Saint. It was an opening night. I think it was Halloween, actually, a Halloween. And the guy at the door pointed to a bowl and it was full of antibiotics. And he said, Oh, take a handful. And I knew what that was. It was like some kind of prophylactics. And I, and I, that was the moment. This is my, oh, God, I don't know what year. It was really early on. I thought, 
this is not going to be good. This is because this was the first time I'd ever thought that this was even happening. You know, if I, I didn't explore any of the background. I was not interested. I wouldn't go upstairs in Studio 54 because I would have killed myself walking in the dark. All I could, I had to be on the dance floor where the light was or else I couldn't mm-hmm. see. So I never got into any trouble. I never looked for trouble. I never explored. I found out later on that all this, this crap was going on. So I really was it's kind of a boring story, actually. You know, it's I just went and danced and I got to know the doorman. You know, I'm a real New Yorker. Like, if I'm going to go to a restaurant more than twice, I want to know the owners. They're going to come out. We're going to know each other. When I walk in the door, we're going to be like, hey, Tony, hey, how are you? And that's how it was. And it's very easy. My um, well, friend of mine's mother one time was in the city visiting, and she said, how does, how does uh, Tony, my friend was in the city, and she said, how does Tony know all these people? He's never met a stranger. And my friend said, he doesn't know these people. She goes, but he's never met a stranger. And that's kind of how I, f- I feel about it was in those days, especially. You never met a stranger. Everybody became your friend right away. You sound like the archetypal New Yorker, uh, Tony, to be in a kind of the stereotype, I guess, uh, which maybe is also lost. I was in New York recently. I, I was surprised by still how friendly like New Yorkers were and how approachable. But there is, to your earlier point, this kind of atomization or or, or loss. So I'm, I'm glad to hear your stories of, uh, of being a real person in a real time, uh, chopping it up with people. Um, and on the dance floor, that's very important as well. You were living life, you know? Uh, but it does sound like also there was these... I guess like signs or like kind of hints of like of oh, yeah. dar- of darkness, you know, like death, like creeping up around you. Like, do you, do you remember totally. like that? That Absolutely. I, yeah. Absolutely. And I'll say one more thing about like the clubs. You have to remember, this was a time where at home we had AM radio. And if you had a stereo, it was a crappy stereo. I mean, you had to be a millionaire to have a good hi-fi set. That's what we called it. So to go out to a club, the first time I went to Studio 54, I'll never forget it. They were playing eye to eye contact and boom, boom, boom. And the lights were coming down, the sound system. I, I I just got goosebumps talking about it. I was like, I'm in heaven. This is the, I can't believe this. I feel, you feel like you were in the middle of a movie. And it was great. And people were just having fun. Creeping in in the late 70s, for me, I started to notice people's faces very quickly getting old. And I can't say these people were my friends. They were my acquaintances. Sometimes I didn't even know their names, but you saw the same people all the time. It really, New York's not a big place. And I remember looking, I was at a party and I knew some people. And I remember looking at this one guy and he was my age. And I thought, gosh, he looks like he aged 10 years since I saw him. And I'm thinking, and I asked my boy, when was the last time I saw him? And he was like, oh, six months ago, blah, blah, blah. We're at that. And I thought, and I said, He's, he looks so old. And my friend said to me, oh, this is what I thought was interesting, how we ourselves were like, I don't know, denying things. My friend said to me, well, you know, the life of a gay man, we don't sleep right, we don't eat right, we drink too much, we smoke too much, we're out too late, and that's what happens. 
And I thought, and eh, now I know a lot of people that do that and they don't age 10 years in six months. I remember thinking that's too trite of an answer. That's too pat. And this is, I mean, as a side thing, after I started noticing that, I actually wrote a poem. This is before anybody talked about HIV. I actually wrote a poem called Something Bad in the Blood. And I remember, I, I don't, I can't find it now, but I remember the first couple lines were like $50, $50 at the door, because that's what it costs to get into these places usually. Uh, $50 at the door and, these, and then went on from there. But the focus of it was, I really thought something bad was happening. And I was, I was, I was frightened. I didn't know it was the lifestyle. I just, then it was like, I thought it was, people saying it was poppers. And I, so I pretty much just smoked my cigarettes, smoked my marijuana, drank my booze, danced and stayed away from everything else, uh, including unsafe sex, which we had no name for it then. And I wasn't doing it because of necessarily any health reasons, although yes, because I didn't even like touching doorknobs. So I was really very, I wasn't somebody to just roll into bed. You know, I had to know the sheets were clean. I had to know where they, what kind of detergent they were cleaned in. It wasn't easy to go out with me. Um, so, but I just started seeing people disappear. That's the other thing. You go and you're like, you know, where's John? I haven't seen it. I don't know. I don't know. Again, this is before we had communication like we have today. People didn't even know each other's phone numbers. They just knew you were there on a Tuesday. I'll see you on Tuesday. Every Tuesday you're there. And people just disappeared. And then I remember somebody said to me, oh, everyone's going to Palm Springs. Or, and I thought, ah, this is, come on, everybody that you see is moving to Palm Springs. And what it was, I can reflect on later, is people were hiding if they weren't dead because they had KS. Or they were too sick to walk down the street to go to a club. Who the hell's going to a club when you're that sick? And I remember, yeah. and I remember that like a change was happening because like there was a bar on 8th Avenue. I can't remember the name of 8th and maybe 15th Street. And there was the most handsome bartender I had such a crush on. I just used to go in there to just look at him and talk to him. And, I, and every time he talked to me, I was like floating. And I just remember watching him, his face change and his beefy muscles deteriorate. And nobody was talking about it. Nobody's mentioning it. Even him, you know, everybody's just pretending it wasn't happening. And that, I, that disturbed me. And then like when we, people were facing, I can tell you with the same bartender, when it did become evident what was going on, when we did understand there was a virus going around. And then when they first started measuring T cells, I remember going in there, not anymore to gawk at his beauty because honestly the virus had taken that away it was to it was to see him as a human to see how he was doing and i remember one day he ran up to behind the bar he tried it up and he pulled out a piece of paper and he said i have 200 t-cells he was so happy he was so happy he was celebrating his 200 t-cells and i never saw him again and i thought oh this is this is messed up you know this is and again, we were so ignorant. I mean, it was a big deal to know what a T cell was. Never mind viral loads. So the and I, so the big the big difference happened from the late seventies to the early eighties. Even before AIDS was defined, it was like people were getting sick. They couldn't dance anymore, and they needed help. They needed food. They needed somebody to cook for them. So yeah, it was very drastic. I'm glad I had that little touch of. Really, it was like when you watch an old movie and you look and you go, oh, my God, like these people seem like such 
dancing fools, you know, like we were. And then we weren't because how can you be like all like, yay, we, and when you see everyone's dying around you and nobody's talking about it. <laughs> I was too young to be in the community during this period. Um, and uh, I saw some things on the television that early, there was a British ad about HIV. Mm -hmm. It was a tombstone. And it said, there's a new disease going around. And it was, it was in the vein of Michael Jackson thriller. It was trying mm -hmm. to be horrifying. And it was. And I remember mm -hmm. being a, a young teenager seeing it and just going, oh, crap. I, yeah. knew, I know who I was. I knew I didn't know what my life would, how it would manifest. But I knew that I wasn't going to grow up and try to pretend to be straight and have a family and all of that. I understood the writing on the wall. But the point of all of that is that the... Um, the perception from the outside was really so minimal. There were these tiny little glimpses. There was an early Ted Koppel story. There was there was that that PSA. There was a couple other bits and pieces here and there. But during this period, say from 77, 78, when the Heptavac shots were administered in November, and then the beginning of 1979, as men were reportedly starting to deal with these physical changes that you've described, um, there was no visibility. There, it, it, the issue of the gay community was being eclipsed by Carter's. The Republicans were up in arms about Carter, and there was a whole lot of other agenda on the stage while this is going on quietly. Was there anything that you remember? I know we've clarified that you weren't connected to that that study itself, and that obviously, as a as a teenager, you know, you weren't you weren't in medicine or nursing or anything in the city. Um, was there anything else that you can recall besides that incident? with the bartender, which is a, a powerful testament about changes in health. Um, I would say it was almost looking back on it, it was like we were in a speeding car that was kind of going too fast on a really scary road. And then everybody put their foot down on the gas pedal even harder. Mm -hmm. It's like we discovered that there was something definitely being sexually transmitted and it seemed to me that people doubled down on random sex and just let's do it more. Almost like, okay, this party's coming to an end. You better get this in now while we can. But we'll be okay now because this won't happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I saw things as far as sexual performance out up in the open or people or even men approaching me you know it was definitely ramped up like uh okay it's mid midnight's coming quick yeah i did notice that it was seedier for lack of a better word um mm -hmm. it got it went from like people would come with maybe like dr that's the other thing too everybody dressed really well like you just, if you couldn't, if you didn't have something, you didn't go out, like you dressed up. And I noticed that like that changed, that stopped. And even personal hygiene is a place. I was like, huh, this is interesting. And I'm looking back, it was probably maybe as the people got sick, some of these men got sick, their personal hygiene maybe was going down the toilet. I don't know. I know I wasn't, I'm old now. I got to like every 15 minutes it's breakfast. I feel like, geez, I got to take another shower. 
So I get it when you're kind of more feeble, you, it's harder to take care of yourself. But, um, you know, I had, I had people in my life at that point, you know, now, okay, so in the early 80s, we discovered HIV. And then, you know, for me personally, I could tell you that I discovered I was positive when, when I was 22. I just turned 22. And I had been with a man for several years. And he was older. And I really felt I was safe because I didn't have any STDs from him. We were monogamous. He was perfectly healthy. And I had, you know, my first, I guess, I don't know what to call it, encounter that would uh, perhaps transmit HIV with him. And I knew, I knew the next, not even the next day, I knew that night that I had gotten a virus or something because I got sick right away. Talk about, what do they call that? Seroconversion. Yeah, talk about seroconversion. It was like, oh my God, like I knew I was like hit by a truck. And I'm 22 years old and I'm thinking, oh my God. And I even said to, to my boyfriend, I'm like, I don't feel well. Like, you know, and we just hung on to like denial or something. I don't know what, but I just, for me, everything stopped at that moment. You know, I had, I get like a better words, let down my guard because I thought I had been perfectly safe and I, it couldn't happen to me. But I learned that even in a monogamous relationship, when there was no way to test or there was nothing to know other than somebody's word, they're saying that they felt fine, you had nothing to go on. And, you know, years later, when I was helping my friend in the hospital, coming to visit him every day, he was so sad. He, he kept apologizing that he made me positive. And, and I used to, you know, we used to kid around. I'm like, ah, don't worry, I'll, I'll be dead soon. I'll be joining you. Don't worry about it. I said, oh, cheer up. I'll be hit by a bus on my way out. I'll go before you. I tried to make light of it because this was not, he didn't, he didn't, it was nothing he did wrong. It was, we were all ignorant. Um, but I saw the treatment he got because he was wealthy, I had insurance and he was on the, you know, an Upper East Side, you know, hospital being taken care of very well. And then I also had friends that were on welfare, you know, like an old boyfriend's cousin who, you know, was from, the, you know, South America and was living in the Bronx. And I would go visit him in the hospital. You know, it was, I can't say it was just AIDS patients in particular, it probably was all patients. But, you know, I went from like the Rolls Royces of the hospitals to the donkeys of hospitals. And I saw the different treatment. And it was, there was really no treatment per se, but it was how the human was treated. Now, in the good hospital, I'll call it, the patient was treated as if they had the plague, but perhaps they were not the devil themselves. Mm. In the lesser hospitals, they were treated as the devil, and the quicker you die, we need this bed. And because, it was, I don't know, I just noticed because if I guess it's if you don't have a lot of money, everybody just thinks you're a loser or something, or you're bad. or. And I could tell you one story, and this is... You know, it was my observation, and I'm sure people would say maybe I observed wrong, but I was in hospital, a lesser hospital, I guess a charity, I don't know what to call it. And my friend was in there in the room I was visiting him, and he was on a respirator. That's the other thing, I have to set the stage. You went to see your friends, they couldn't talk to you because they were on respirators, traked. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like they were awake, but they were motioning. This was a lot of, and you had to go in there and were you going to come in crying? No, you had to come in and be like full of hope. And 
and just trying to bring a little bit of outside life in, you know, some gossip or this, and, and trying to pretend there was some normalcy in all this. So I remember I was in the in this bad hospital, and I was with my friend who's on the respirator, and a couple of orderlies or nurses came in, and they said, oh, could you excuse us, please? We need to change his respirator. Whereas, I don't know, I guess, guess they called it a respirator. And I thought, huh, changing it, it's working fine. Why changing it for? And I heard one of them say, it's, we have to bring it to this other room. And I thought, oh, they're bringing it to another patient, but they'll bring him another one. And I sat in the hall and I watched him take the respirator out of the room. And then I'm waiting for another one to come in. It's not coming in. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, they just took his breathing apparatus away. And then I went in the room and he's struggling to breathe. And I came out screaming like I was in terms of endearment, you know. I was like, well, get me a get a respirator, get a get a ventilator. What the hell's going on here? Everybody's looking at me. And I remember, you don't forget this. They looked at me like, oh, he figured it out. Mm-hmm. They, 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 I don't know, at the time I thought maybe they mercy killed him or something, but he died. Because they took him off, it was like they took him off the ventilator and they slow, my sister who's a nurse said it's called slow coding. They slowly, you know, half hour, an hour later, I don't remember, rolled another one in by the time he was going to die. And I thought, was that on purpose? And I'm sure every single person in a hospital would say it was not on purpose. I'm sure of it. Because how could you do that? But something in the system allowed that to happen. And I thought, whoa, we got to get really vigilant here because it was fait accompli. When you had AIDS and you were in the hospital, it was really not if you were going to die. It was like, could you hurry up and die, please? Mm-hmm. You're taking a bed up because we need another person in this bed to die. It was like an assembly line. So I had to spend a lot of time out of my work life spending time with my people, people I loved or people I didn't even necessarily know that well. It's just they needed something. They needed, I did a lot of delivery of those, what they call them, egg crate mattress pads to people. You know, you'd go visit them and they look so uncomfortable and you could run to Bed Bath & Beyond and pick one up for 30 bucks, bring it in and you were a hero. Even people in the hospital, like, oh, you said, you're I'm like a hero. It's a friggin', what's the big deal? No big deal. Would you talk about the level of organization in the buddy support system? I understand it from a West Coast perspective in the San Francisco model pretty well, but tell us about New York and and what do you remember about well, you know, friends helping was, friends? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was there wasn't a system. It was because it had we were making a system. We were digging the trenches for the system, and my experience. I can only speak of mine. Mine was, I was so impressed with my Wall Street employer. I was so impressed because I was, you know, I was needed there, but I had to leave a lot of times at three o'clock or in the middle of the day because somebody needed me. It was either because they were sitting with a doctor and they didn't understand what the doctor was telling them, or they were in the hospital and they were dying and they needed somebody's hand or they just, I don't know. I can't even remember what the needs were because there were so many They were, and they were all so easily solved by just being present but to be present required leaving my job and my employer was so cool about it they were like their their philosophy seemed to be we're in this together go take care of this we'll see you later 
Is there anyone by first name that you, whether they oh, hear this or not, that you want to say thank you to? Oh, Lillian. Yeah. I mean, she's no longer with us, but she was so supportive. And, and you know, it. I never, I never really talked about that. I never really, really reflected on it because I thought all the things I was able to do, I was doing because it was me. But I look back and it was like, no, there were a thousand angels behind me, helping me, supporting me, allowing me. Like I didn't lose my job because I left at three o'clock a couple of times a week for a year or two. You know, I'd never felt a fear. Nobody ever. So I felt a lot of informal support. Nothing was ever put in writing, but it was a lot of, you looked at people's, like you went to a Broadway show and I remember, you know, Bette Midler on stage talking about our people dying, our hairdresser dying. And it was like, we were like, everybody's dying. So you treated each other very well. You worked together, unless you were a real asshole, which they were. But everybody realized, oh my God, who's next? And it could be, it wasn't even, it could be somebody I love. It was just, it could be just somebody. It was just like, who's next? Um, so it was like whistling next to whistling through a graveyard, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought people that, were on very good behavior. Actually. That might be one of, one of the more important, um, lessons or meditations for the current day with regard to how we face what person is going to have um, a sudden death who is going to just, you know, young person, uh, a celebrity. Yes. I, I'm so grateful for everyone that contributes to arts and sports and movies and all of that. But celebrities are just one person and every other person in the world uh, means the same to somebody, to their mm -hmm. mother, to their brother, their friends, someone. Um, so all of these losses, including the ones, you know, of, of elders who, like you said, that going back to the, the separation from the ventilator to the current day where we couldn't even go into the facility and it was through glass. Mm -hmm. Those are very difficult moments for me to go back and see them happening again. Did you have anything in the current day that was, um, say, something new that came up or something you were able to do or see that was different than than back during that period? Uh, um, the people that were sick and dying of COVID were not villainized. People did mm -hmm. not say, well, why were they breathing? Mm -hmm. They should not have been out breathing. But people with, with HIVs, well, you are butt-fucking somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to say all the time, if the disease was spread by cunnilingus, it would have been cured in like 1983. Mm -hmm. um, it was really a lot of judgment, you know, and I just talked about all the positive part, but that was my peeps. That was my turf. That was my side of the coin. There was the whole other side. And the other side was a lot of family members of the dying, of the sick and dying. I can't even say the sick because they, everyone eventually died that I knew. The, they were they were seem to be the problem the medical community they were a problem there was there was apathy um if but the families and a lot of men that lived in new york at that time they lived there because they fled where they grew up they couldn't stay there so they came to new york so in the 70s and 80s 
a lot of gay New York men were from somewhere else, a lot. And when their families, if they came to visit them, they came in and they looked at, I can remember, it was very common. They would look at me like, you gave it to him. And New York City made him sick. And this whole godforsaken hospitals of peace, it was it's like, oh, mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, uh, there was one family that they they told me they blamed me. For, I was like, his friend, I'm like, I've never had sex with, what are you talking about? But they just needed somebody to blame. And I thought, wow, I could have, I could have had a chicken sitting there clucking and they would have blamed the chicken. Mm-hmm. It was like this detachment from reality and the anger, the anger, the anger that those families had. And they were very free to show their flat affectation to the dying person. Very free to show it to me. And no, I didn't see a lot of, it's funny. The people, the, now the people that were in town, I will say the ones that were like from around New York, they were okay. But the ones that flew in from other parts of the country, they had no context for this at all, except to be angry and hate you. And, um, you know, I knew I was positive at this point. So I'm doing all this, I don't know, goody two shoes for the lack of a better word. And I'm thinking, well, when am I going to get sick? When am I laying in this bed? You know, I had a lot of for whom the bell tolls going on in my head. You know, I kept saying that these people are dying. But I'm like, yes, yeah, so are you, you know, Tony, like this is your bell ringing too. Mm-hmm. And um, it was frustrating at the time because my progression of HIV wasn't typical. So I, as soon as I knew I was positive very early on, you know, I was close with doctors and I'm seeking medical attention. What are we doing? What's the latest? What's the greatest? And there was a sense of frustration with me because I wasn't progressing at the rate I was supposed to. I wasn't getting sick. And so I kept getting retested and retested because the doctors would say, you should be much sicker than this by now. This is odd, you know. And I used to think, well, why don't you ask me what I do? Why don't you ask me what I eat? Why don't you ask me, you know, like never a question why is it happening? It was just like, huh, like almost, it was like disappointed. Like, hmm. and then I remember that movie Philadelphia came out and I don't know, some doctor I was at was again, like frustrated with me because I wasn't getting sick and it wasn't fitting the pattern. And I said to him, are you trying to cast for the movie, the remake of Philadelphia? Do I need to act more sick when I'm here? Because as you maybe can hear in my voice even, I don't really take prisoners. I'm kind of like, eh, I don't mind if you don't like me. I don't mind saying something rude if I have to. And um, I said to him, I was like, you seem to really, you know, like want me dead. And he said, we'll never forget this. Well, you don't seem to realize this disease is 150% fatal and you're just not, you're denying and you're just blocking it. And it's 150%. And I said, oh, so you want to kill me one and a half times. It's not enough I die once. You got to kill me one and a half times. And I thought, it's not 150% fatal. I said to him, I said, it's 99% fatal. So do you laying bullshit odds? Here's my bullshit odds, 99%. And I'm going to be the 1%. And so far I have. I mean, it's 42 years later. I don't know how many years. And all these doctors are dead, I have to say. And... You know, every time I renewed a magazine subscription, I'm like, I would cry. I'm like, this is the last time I'm renewing this. I'll be dead next time. 
and you know that really fucks with your head and then you feel like you're letting people down because you're not you know progressing or like oh geez i'm doing i can't even die right you know and one of the things that was frustrating them was they, they introduced azt and again i could all go by my own observations i knew so many sick people and i would watch them take this azt and i would watch them die sooner and quick quicker and nastier it was almost like it killed them in in a few months and i i would say that to the dom like i'm not taking this I said, it's either the wrong drug or it's being prescribed to wrong or, and at the time, this was kind of like very novel that I even knew this, but I said, I don't want to take a monotherapy. I, I want a triple therapy. And very early on, the doctors would be like, what are you talking about triple therapy? And I said, well, isn't that how they got tuberculosis under control? I think it was a triple therapy of three different classes of drugs. And they were like, ah, you know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. 40 years later, I read a book called Bellevue, 300 Years of Mayhem or whatever. And there was a chapter on a doctor named Dr. Lincoln. And she ran the tuberculosis ward at Bellevue. And in, in the book that was published two years ago, they said she came up with the novel therapy of a triple combination of three different classes of drugs to treat tuberculosis, which eventually became the basis of HIV treatment. So I was saying this in the 1980s. And as a little side note, my dad actually had been treated by her because as a child in the 30s, he lived at Bellevue in, the, in her ward. So this doctor treated my father for 10 years personally. So I always felt, was there something spiritual that I got that message? And it, it turns out also when I researched her, when I found, I read that book, I, she lived about a mile from where I live now. So I felt like, wow, that was all that time that in the 80s, where I kept saying I'm hanging on for triple therapy. There was, I can't say, but how did I know that? I don't know. I, there was no internet. I didn't study it. I didn't, how did I know that? Because then I finally found a doctor when I said that to him, he said, oh yeah, you're right. And that's when I knew I was with the right doctor. And he was an integrative doctor. But I had to really, I had to cut my own path because the medical community at large wasn't interested in somebody that was surviving. They hadn't yet. And I would say, I would say, do you want to know what I eat or what I smoke or what I don't smoke? Do you have any interest in other than me dying? No. So it was, it was very much stiffens my backbone up because I realized, oh, I'm in this alone. I had a doctor that fired me because and she said, I have to fire you um, because she said, you know more about this than I do. She says, you're asking me questions. I don't even know what the question is. Like, I don't, like I would ask about, I guess at the time it was viral load or something pretty simple, but doctors didn't know that. You had a really special. Yes, but you, you might've put her in a position um, uh, I would assume that she was concerned about being in a position of liability for not even being able to interpret. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like it was really before the era, before they put the foot down on the referral circuit, you go to your doctor and you go like, okay, get ready. There'll be six stops on the referral circuit as we Very refer you so. and refer you and refer you to specialist after specialist. So yeah, you get a, a primary care provider and it there, it's still the country doctor model. 
and uh, you ask a question and demonstrate that you've been uh, leafing around in the scientific literature and you've learned some things uh, and you just put them uh, in a defensive posture, it, it feels like. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So, but I'm, also, I'm, I'm that was nice. Compliant. Yeah. You know, I wasn't compliant if they like the doctors that were like, you have to take the AZT. I'm like, no, doctors don't want to hear that. And I used mm-hmm. to, I came up with my own thing. I used to say, here's how it goes. This is Tony's Health Inc. I'm chairman of the board. You're on the board of directors, but I'm chairman. Get it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, and they, nobody likes to hear that. Somebody talk like that to them, except some people. I had many professionals be like, you got it. You know, I'm fine with that, but you have to find them. Yeah. I I, that, I kind of go ahead go ahead Paul. I was going to say that's a I think that's a model everyone can uh, take advantage of to this day. I think that's the way you should approach your your health is that you are the the chairman. I, I, that's brilliant, Tony. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it's you know it was that a necessity? You know, I'll tell you another thing. This is I guess it's on the track, but you know when you're told you're going to die within the first time was six months, and you know then it was like oh you got a year, then it was like well, maybe you have two years. When you realize your mortality and you're in your 20s, you learn to skip to the answer. You learn to get to the answer of everything because you don't have maybe six months to try to figure it out. You have to get the answer. So I've always said like, and it works for me now, even as a, an oldster, like I, if I die now, it's not premature. I'm dying with HIV, not from it. Um, it really still stirs me because it's like, I'm not gonna spend six months figuring this out i'm going to figure this out now let's get get to the answer and it's very interesting because it's a practice and it's kind of just like i don't know like any practice like you can actually do it you can find the answer very quickly to difficult things um it's a it's a barrier that uh, some folks feel that if they encounter a certain percentage of words or periodicals or concepts or you know they just look at the first scientific diagram that shows um cellular mechanisms going back and forth you know those wonderful scientific illustrations and it's if it's over their head they they just surrender in the same way that you might say you know i'm a mac guy i don't know how to work on windows pc something like that you just excuse yourself from from ever even trying or applying yourself and I would say if history hadn't taken the turn that it did with Kissinger and Rockefeller and everything that we're dealing with today, that it wouldn't be a necessity. We could still um, really relinquish that sacred knowledge to a practitioner if they really were all in it for our wellness then mm-hmm. every time we saw them, instead of this is going to be a six encounter billable opportunity, looking at you in those kinds of, of frameworks, instead they said, ah, the most likely root cause of this problem is this based on what the patient has shared. Let's go after the root cause. Those are the kind of practitioners that we all want. And we know we, we've all experienced the other type. So, yes, even the best. I- I have to say, I really have run the gamut from, I would say, geniuses to people, as my mother would say, graduate. Somebody's graduating at the bottom of their class. Um, I did run, and when I would find a really good physician or uh, a practitioner, I would, I would make them my family. I, re- I really would. I was like, I would let them know how much I appreciated them, and 
It's not bullshit. It's when you tell somebody the truth and the truth happens to be complimentary, it's nice for them to hear. And then they pay, you know, people pay attention because now you're dealing with somebody you like and it's a human. And, you know, even my doctor today, I've been with him now 28 years. I mean, I'm going to retire my seventh doctor at this point. You know, we love each other. He's so proud, you know, of what my status is now. He's so proud to like, you were my, so you have to also, you know, for as much, oof, much horribleness I've had within the medical community, you really do have to, if somebody's working with you, you have to be, become partner with them. You have to find places to like them. Absolutely. Tony, Tony I want to go back just for a moment uh, to this story that you shared. Uh, everything you've shared actually is incredible. Thank you. I'm really struck by this story about this doctor from like the 30s who treated your father, uh, whose philosophy yeah, really I guides mean, you. That's incredible. You, you mentioned earlier, like thousands of angels behind you. Like To yeah. me, I really believe she's one of them. As I mentioned, there is this like transcendent quality to history and time that we don't fully understand um and i found that just really inspiring i just wanted to like underline that i just thought it was incredible uh, thank to hear you. you know thank you because it sounds i mean if i if it wasn't happening to me and i know i know these facts are all true i don't think i'd believe it i mean it's so incredible because through the you know through the whole 80s i can't tell you how many times i kept saying triple combination triple therapy and we, i need three classes and even when i had a really great doctor he said, I believe you. And when um, the protease inhibitors came out, 1996 Crixervan came out, I said to him, I said, I want to wait one more year. And he said, why? I said, because I wanted, I just want to see if it's making anybody sick. It's too good to be true. So I waited till September of 97 to start the triple combination. And I want to tell you, when I put it in my mouth, that combination, I could, I felt stronger an hour later. I could feel my body getting on top of the virus like it never had before. And it was awesome. It was so awesome that I can conjure up. Like if I had to go on stage and you said, Tony, play awesome, I could play awesome because I just have to think of that moment when I realized I had made it to the top of that mountain. And then I had that, I could feel it in my body that, I was going to die with HIV, not from it. Did you, did you have, did you have a transcendent experience at that moment? I don't mean overtly religious or something like that, but I'm talking about your gut and your yeah. sense of your timeline. Did you feel yeah. like you were turning a corner? I, I felt like I was put in a rocket ship and fired off to Healthland. I felt like this is what I had been waiting for this feeling it was almost as if i don't know sometimes like i don't know i heard barbara streisand interview and she said she always knew she was going to be famous she always knew i always kind of knew that that moment was going to happen i just mm -hmm. the doctors would say you're in denial i would say i don't know i just had this feeling it's i don't know why and i was right and you know i'm sure it's total coincidence because i probably was denial i mean come on but i just I waited and when I took the, when it happened, I was so, and that's, it's interesting because I was, for as sick as I was, I didn't look it. I just happened to have where the, you know, fat on my face or fat, I just, everything was in the right place. I looked good. 
and looked healthy. Sometimes I would have a fever and it made me look even better because my cheeks would get red. And mm-hmm. I remember walking down the street once to go visit a friend that was dying in Brooklyn. And I had like a 102 fever. I was so sick. It was HIV. And I'm walking down the street and some guy like was like, hey, hey, man, hey, man. And I thought, what the hell? He's... And I looked in the mirror and I was like, geez, my cheeks are all red from the fever. You look great. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, this is so bizarre to be so sick and to not. I was, at one hand, I was so happy that I was passing as healthy. Because I didn't have to tell anybody at work. I have to tell my family. I didn't have to talk about it. And I, I figured I'm going to die. I mean, it was had to be realistic. And I thought, I'm going to pass as long as I can as healthy. Because then my life will stay the same. My brother will still treat me like shit. He'll still tell me I'm an idiot when I bring something up about an old car I had. Like, oh, what are you doing that for? I didn't want people to think I was going to die because then they'd all be nice to me all the time. And my life, would, I wouldn't have my life. You know, every every time I would love me, would look at me, I would think, what are they thinking? Mm-hmm. And, and they would be too nice to me. And so I wanted my life. And it's funny, people talk about bucket lists and what they would do. And I lived that. Like, it's such a fantasy. It's such a Hollywood fantasy, all that bucket list stuff. All you want is normal. You want to get on the sub. You want to go to work. You want to have a fight. You want to read the paper. You want to be bored. Let me tell you, when you're dying, you're not bored because you're tormented. And the state of being tormented, you're not bored. You're just tormented. I remember every morning I woke up, I thought, why am I even getting out of this bed? And I thought, well, because you're going to experience a normal day and you're going to go look in that window on the way to the bus stop and see what new shoes they put in the window and how fashions are changed. You're going to observe life. That's why I think these movies are such bullshit. You don't want to go fly off to Morocco. You want to go to the deli on the corner and see the guy who's slicing the meat and and see how he's doing, how his family's doing. You want you want normal. And um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting to to really have been there and to come back from it. Um, it's like a, telling a ghost story. And you know, and, and going back to like the, it really was a ghost story with you know Doctor Lincoln and everything. And I, I can only say that I think part of why I my path went the way it did was like, and what's the saying when you make a commitment, the universe conspires to assist you? I think that's some philosopher. I can't remember. It's the been name, some time since I've heard that, but I love it. Yeah, yeah. I really felt I was committed to not being the ninety nine percent deadly person. I was going to try to be that one percent that. I knew I was going to die. Well, I'll tell you something else interesting. When it all changed for me psychologically, I, every room I went to, into where people were in, I would think, oh, you're different. Every event I went to, I'd look around the audience and think, you're different. And one time I went into a room, I don't remember what it was. It was some meeting. And I looked around the room and I was like, you're so different. You're going to die. And I went, oh my God, no, everybody in this room is going to die. I wasn't different. And I thought, it's just that I've been told I have an accelerated schedule of my death. I've been told that. And I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. feeling that. But and I went, well, ain't everybody's going to die. And then like JFK crashed his plane at one point. I thought, oh my God, JFK Jr. died before me. And then Princess Diana died. I was like, oh my God, people. And that's when I realized, well, we're all going to die. So mm-hmm. like, why torment myself? Just live. 
because it'll happen. And when it happens, it happens. And uh, so far, you know, it's, I do I have to tell you, though, I really, really cross the street carefully because I'm like, after all I've been through, I don't want it to be an unlicensed gypsy cab, like hit and run. Like, you know, no. So I'm really careful about like a mundane way to die. Because, <laughs> you know, if I was going to go, I would have done it in a bigger way. But that's, you know, well, that's also too, I try to remain, I try to always remain a sense of humor to the whole thing too. You've tickled my fancy with phrases like whistling past the graveyard mm. and what, you know, what you just shared with um, uh, guarding the precious, you know, the, that life is precious and that, and that there is um, no exemption. There is no note from your mummy that's going to keep you out of the graveyard. Everybody's mm-hmm. going to go. Nobody gets out alive. Um, and um, I think I hear in your soul, in some of these conversations we've had, some of this incredible mirth and playfulness and joy uh, that you also nurture, whether you put it in those terms or you look at it as a philosophy or it's just an attitude, you know, that you you take. Um, I really, really want to emphasize for, for people that are outside of this moment that we're having here as three people um, that are that are maybe getting something else out of this is that keeping um, that spirit alive. That's not a that's not a, a, a turn of phrase. That's the, you know, that's, that is really, really important. And that vitality um, for, uh, for driving yourself, for trying the next thing, for not waiting for something, or we're talking about health. So waiting for a situation to improve or kicking the can, but being proactive and being your own best first opinion your chairman of the board and you know all of these things are are meaningful these aren't touchstones this isn't you know we're not we're having some very very important sentimentality for certain populations but for most of humanity we're talking about things that can translate into um, things that might help you that help that might help you if you're facing long covid and you're mm-hmm. struggling and you're fighting and you're seeing so many people coming in, flooding into the public uh, discourse about treatments and don't do this. And you got to try that and get this now for 30% off. I mean, it's, it's now getting to that point where there's a, there's a swarm of opportunity. There's good information, but it can be overwhelming. But the point Mm -hmm. is act, take Mm -hmm. up your bed and walk. Don't let, you know, don't let this experience walk all over you. Uh, Be nimble. So, um, so, so many good, uh, important lessons here.
continuing through um, your uh, notes and, and your thoughts here on our discussion today. And I'd like to know really what your, do you have a top down um, opinion about if you were to build, here's a hypothetical, if you were to build an optimal patient today facing not what you have walked through, you've already walked through that fire, but facing what people are with COVID today. And I'm not talking about recommended brands or therapies, do this, don't do that. I'm talking about approach to health and approach to owning your health as an integrated patient. Um, How would you coach someone? What would you encourage people to do right now? I would encourage them to deconstruct everything they do on a piece of paper, how much they sleep, what they eat, when they eat it, what exercise, what they read. Deconstruct your life and reconstruct it with what you know you need. Everybody knows they need to have proper nutrition. And when you deconstruct it and you look and you're like, "Mm, I guess Fritos, and I guess just, you know, if I'm on the couch for 10 hours instead of maybe taking a walk down the driveway and back and forth, you know, you just have, I would say, take a real good look at, at yourself, you know, and the stakes are high. Like for me, the stakes were so high. Like it was so important to me because I'm like, I could die. I could die. This is life and death. Cause you know, when, when you it's life and death. So you got to get smart fast. Now, maybe somebody with low on COVID doesn't feel like they're going to die. So it doesn't feel urgent. And they, I would also, you ha- you can't lose hope. Like I was always hopeful that I could find something to maybe at least make me more comfortable. I would, and also too, I always felt like, well, I got to keep going because the longer I keep going, the more we'll learn. And then I can avail myself to the modern knowledge, you know, just get through another year and then they're going to have something else to treat this and you'll, it'll be better. Um, Oh, I would say it's so over said that it stopped, people stop hearing it and I stop it, but nutrition, it's like, if you're eating lots of shit and processed foods, you're going to feel like shit anyway, even if you don't have long COVID. I'm sorry. Like you're not, it's like if you're rowing your boat towards health, why are you pulling yourself back to the other shore by doing shit like smoking cigarettes or I don't know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you got to either be in, in it or not. And it's not like, you know, like I have a, a, a really good diet. It's, I would say clean and, and my friends are like, Oh, don't you miss this? Don't you miss that? I'm like, no, it's like, I, do I miss an abusive lover? No, just because I love pizza doesn't mean it's good for me. It's smacking me in the face. So out, you're out of my life. I might love you, but you're no good for me. You got to get a little tough because it's not, uh, it's not like a, a little pot, you know, ride through the park. It's your life. It's your health. And you gotta, you have to do things like whenever I hear my friends like, well, I don't like to do that. I'm like, well, well, then lay in bed and be sick. There's not one thing I did that I thought was fun. I don't like to eat right. <laughs> you know, I'd rather pull through a drive in somewhere. So it, it comes down to a lot of, you have to give up a lot of the, um, but I wanna do this. Well, sorry. If you wanna do that, you're gonna feel like shit. You wanna feel better? Here's a better plan. So I'm pretty tough about it, you know, because I, I did it. I survived it. I, you know, it's not fun. And I feel, and I feel like, well, if I can do it, shut up. You can do it. 
See, that's why I don't make a lot of friends. <laughs> no, I want to be your best friend and I want to move <laughs> down the street from you. And I want us, I want us to get on our bicycles and we're going to go back out to um, Long Island and we're going to ride around the campus of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories. Oh, yeah. And we're going to have a whole backpack full of uh, bottle rockets and we're going to fire bottle rockets over the over the fence at those fuckers. And then we could look at the deformed fish at the fish hatchery across the street. <laughs> because i grew up there like you knew you know where people lived and i remember jaja gabor's mother lived up on the hill overlooking the laboratory actually magda i think or mitzvah i don't know some and i always remember remember my mother saying oh that's jaja and Eva gabor's mother lives up there and it was just an interesting little thing that i think nobody else in the world knows but except your listeners now and you could ride around that laboratory it it didn't look like a laboratory. It was very stealth. It just looked like an old house, an old mansion. It, you know, it just, it was so innocuous. It was definitely looking back on it, keeping very low key. Do you, is, do you remember? And is across from a fish hatchery. It's on a little tiny strip of land between Cold Spring Harbor and an, another little tiny, uh, I guess, lake or something. Uh, do you remember when they put up fencing? It had to be. I'm going to say it had to be probably mid 80s. I'm going to say. I'm going to say probably around the mid 80s, early 80s. I would tell you, I can remember smoking a cigarette. I was probably 12 or 13 years old, smoking a cigarette, probably 40 miles from my house. And by the time I got home, when I got home, my mother said, you were smoking cigarettes. Oh, <laughs> somebody, she never told me who somebody drove by, saw me and went right to the house and said, your son, Tony, smoking cigarettes at the mall. And blah, 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 blah. that's that's the life of Long Island. They were like, seemed like there were 12 people. And I did have to get out of there. And Manhattan's just as small. Let me tell you. It really is. It's a small, New York is a small place. Earlier when you were talking about New York being a small place too, I was thinking just how much, how impacted it must have been from just the, the specter of the death and disease, right? Like everybody knew somebody, it sounds like. We all think of New York as such a busy, big place, but it, it is small. Like when you actually get there, you actually get a sense of just how like uh, yeah. close everybody is. We, so I can imagine how it transformed. Uh, well, you know, the impact of death, one thing I will say one of my boyfriends and we remained friends uh he passed away and he left me five co-ops in manhattan and two houses on long island i could not rent them out i couldn't get any i brokers because it was aids related especially the apartment he lived in mostly had a couple nobody wanted to be there the tenants that were in the apartments left they didn't renew it was like because the owner or the the per the resident had died of aids it was nobody wanted to touch it and i had to because they all had a mortgage on them so i inherited them but i thought well i'll get tenants in nope and i thought well i'm 20 something years old what the hell am i i gave them each back to the bank and the co-ops legally these apartments today are all worth multi-million dollars. Mm -hmm. I could not give them away because of the taint of AIDS. That's how it was 
if you were gay and you went to somebody's home, it would not be odd if they asked you to bring your own utensils. It wouldn't, it would be not odd if they didn't invite you. Like it, to not get invited anymore would be normal. Um, people, because they were, we were all ignorant. Nobody was really sure what was going on. This, especially in the early days. And when like Princess Diana touched a man with HIV AIDS in the hospital, touched him, just touched him. <gasps> oh my God. The whole God. world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And I'll tell you, I, there's a biography about Tammy Faye Baker, who I used to, as a kid, love to watch her mascara run down her face and everything. I mean, it was just, oh, I just shoot. But everybody always made fun of her, and including me. I was just like, she was just like a joke. And I went to see not the movie that was made about it, but an actual biography about her. It was a real film of her. And there she was, like halfway through, talking about people with AIDS, saying, if you can't hug somebody with AIDS, how can you ever call yourself a Christian? If you can't, she was so ahead of her time and so, so loving. I felt like a piece of shit for everything I'd ever thought about or left about it. And I thought, wow, she got it right. And I'll tell you, I know you're editing everything. I'm going to skip around, but I could tell you something that I got wrong. It was when this friend who actually had left me that real estate was sick. He came to my apartment. He was sick. He was in and out of the hospital. And I was helping him a lot. And I was really exhausted. I was just exhausted. And I wasn't helping because I thought there was any inherent fact. I didn't know. I just was, you know, helping him. And he came to my apartment and he rang the bell. And I looked on the video and I saw him in the lobby. And for like 10 seconds, I pretended I wasn't home. And in those 10 seconds, I was on my way to hell. And I pushed the button and let him in. And I thought, that is the lowest I've ever sunk in my life. And when you sink that low, even if it's for 10 seconds, you never, ever want to go to that place again. And that, I don't know what it did to me, but I just never want to have that feeling of doing the wrong thing, even if it's for 10 seconds. I want my reaction to be correct and loving and not self-centered. It's not always possible. But I thought, gee, if I felt that way, if I felt like leaving him, he needed a blood transfusion. If I felt like leaving him in my hallway to collapse, even for 10 seconds, maybe it was five, maybe it was a minute, I don't know. I understood why other people could do it. I understood the people that I did not like. I understood the people that were like me. But I felt fortunate that I was only that way for like 10 seconds. But I guess that's just one of the observations I had. I'll tell you another observation. It was early on when it was really scary. And I had, I think I had mentioned people seemed to go become more sexual. I remember being in a doctor's office and there was a couple, a gay couple, and they asked me to, they asked me first if I was positive, which Obviously, it was from being in this office. And they said, oh, well, we're only going to have sex with positive people. We're only going to have sex with positive people. And I was like, it's not my thing. Thank you very much. But I thought, oh, that's interesting. They're forming like HIV sex clubs. And I thought, mm -hmm. I don't know how that's going to go. And then the same couple, I don't know how long later. I'm going to say it was two years later. We were friendly. I'd see them at the doctor's office and around town walking. Again, New York's a small place. They said to me, we are going to commit suicide. 
we're going to jump off a building, probably ours, it's high enough. And if you're interested, you know, let us know if you would like something you'd want to do. And I thought, wow, first it was they wanted to have sex. And now they're so hopeless that they want to jump off a building to just get it over with. And I thought, and I said to them, the first thing that came to my mind, I said, you know, with my luck, I'll do it. And that morning's New York Post will have cure for HIV found. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I said, so no. I'm going to go. I, I'm not going to do that. And I don't know what they ever did. I never read about them doing it. But that's really how I thought. I was like, I'm not going to get ahead of myself here, you know. But I just thought that was an interesting point in time. Again, it's something I never read, you know. I never read about HIV men banding together to have sex because they thought somehow, I guess it's the only, maybe in some way that was responsible. I'm not sure. Um, and then there was also the people that, you know, the denialists, just like, you know, this COVID denialist is, I, I don't know. I don't know if there were any polio denialists, honestly, because when you're in iron lung or you can't walk, it's kind of hard to deny that. Um and the HIV denialists, like I had one friend and I still have his crystals. You know, he was completely convinced it was crystals that was going to, you know, this is an educated person. And he just was putting crystals on his stomach and then crystals, crystals, you know, he, he died. But I have his crystals now and I, I just think, wow, he really, he did believe it. And maybe he was right and it just didn't work for him. I don't know, but just saw so much desperation. Well, I'd love to um, just sit with you for hours and and look through supplements, um, plant science, you know, f nutraceuticals, mm -hmm. phytoceuticals, things like that, mm -hmm. and compare. We could start with um, a compendium that I inherited from another long haul survivor that made it to 2017. And he, mm -hmm. he, uh, he succumbed to liver cancer, but had a wonderful, fulfilling existence and had the same fire in his belly that you do. And, uh, and he was a New Yorker. He was a native New Yorker. Uh, I won't name him, uh, but I will name, I can say his nickname. He was the Polish princess. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, there wasn't very much princess about him. He was pretty, uh, you know, baritone, rough, gruff, tough New Yorker it was really my first impression of what is a real native New Yorker like. Um, so, but I'd love to show you his guide. And it's 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 quite grounded. It's uh, it traces to all of the analytics, all of the testing that he had done over time about what parasites do I have, what you know predilections do I need to treat, etc. So there was a very coherent um, approach to it, and and it's not dozens and dozens of pages. It's it's not the Bhagavad Gita or a new chapter of of Ayurvedic medicine. It's it's just a wonderful integrated approach, and it would be fun to to get your get your thoughts on it sometime it would be you know you just something in my memory just came back there was a time in the beginning obviously early 80s where i, I was reading i was trying to find read about crystals i read because we had nothing but alternate therapies mm -hmm. and there was this one therapy that people were doing it had something to do with electricity because the doctor or whoever i don't think these were doctors the person thought that it was uh, amoebas 
and amoebiosis in the intestines that was causing the disease, the HIV. And there was some kind of electrocution where you would hold on to things that would give you electric shocks through your body and it would kill the amoebas. And, and I remember thinking, oh gosh, you know, I being open-minded about it and then reading more and just being like, oh my God. I'll tell you, there was a good quote that I read. I don't know if I read it or somebody told me, you know, Tony, you have to look at this as there's the fringe and then there's the middle. All change comes from the fringe and it burns its way to the middle today's fringe is tomorrow's standard procedure and so that's why it's is outrageous or whatever fringy something seems i always want to try to discover it maybe rule it out rule it in or just have no opinion but never ignore the fringe because that's tomorrow's truth um and that's what happened in my case. Like I had a doctor treating me in the mid eighties with hormone replacement. And that's maybe one of the reasons I'm alive way before anybody was doing that. And that was fringy and it was considered fringy. I had to pay for it myself because insurance wouldn't cover it because it was fringe. It was not. So uh, yeah, I'd love to see that what, what your, the Polish princess wrote because it, it comes from the outside. True change. Mm-hmm. I love uh, what you just shared. It's making me think of how quick that cycle occurred, um, how grateful I am, even as the world is reeling in horror to a, to a certain degree, as these um, disclosures and uh, confrontations and legal battles are, are really just firing up about what happened prior to the epidemic and who mm -hmm. knew and all of that. Mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of people that are overwhelmed, but I'm seeing it now, unfortunately, from the systems perspective, a systems level perspective of another operation. And it was massive. But the reaction within society towards finding their own way to research and that first opinion we mentioned before being really their own, their, and, and you can go to a doctor and they'll say, well, take these and then six of these. And then at four o'clock, drink a half a cup of this and then stand on your head. What's mm -hmm. really going to matter is adoption of the therapy by the patient. That's really what counts is what will they actually do? And we see people that have turned around very quickly and they went from making fun of horse paste, Mm -hmm. And making fun of anything that wasn't remdesivir and ventilators mm -hmm. and, you know, all of mm -hmm. that horror show that happened to very quickly uh, realizing, wow, not only is that stuff crazy and wrong, we need to push back, but also look at this new constellation of strange health problems that are emerging very quickly in people who took the jabs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's an inversion occurring in their skepticism. I don't have polling. I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm very much affected by the microcosm of the Twitterverse. So that's, that's the lens that I'm looking at uh, a lot of this through, but I am seeing in personal anecdotal experiences, some people turning around and saying, Hey, Nick, remember that weird thing you were talking about? I'd like to see that paper going back and revisiting things. And by now I can say, Hey, it's not, you don't have to wade through um, a biology course. You don't have to be a self-taught nutritionist. There are folks that are now condensing it. You can go to this protocol website. There is this coalition of frontline care providers, COVID, COVID care providers, who are bringing you the best data 
in real time and they get, and they're doing it outside the constraints of the FDA or the CDC mm-hmm. many of them at the you know the cost of their own original careers they're starting over but they're doing it for humanity so i'm very very heartened by people who seem to have caught fire the way you did yeah, and that's the the time portion of it you know if if you can hang on time things usually change for the better or more is more knowledge is gained the more knowledge is better i mean it's power knowledge is power talk about it and i had talked with nick about it it's like in the middle of this new york you know everybody's dying everything's that we had a serial killer and you know pool to your the fact that you're a young person and you're interested in this history and you're trying to make records of it and trying to understand it i was approached by some young people also who wanted to delve into the serial killer that was killing gay men in the late 80s and early 90s who's now in prison but and it became an HBO special, and I, which I participated in. But the, what happened was he had drugged me and attempted to kill me. I literally outsmarted him. Don't ask me how, but I mean, I, you, I could, you could watch it. But um, I got what's away it co- from what's him. it? What's it called? It's called Last Call. Uh, it's on HBO. Um, so in the middle of everybody dying of AIDS, there was a serial killer going around New York. And he drugged me, followed me home, pushed in, and I managed to literally, as I was passing out, trick him out of my apartment and into the hallway by saying I wanted to go to the roof because I figured c- crazy people love roofs. And I was right. And then I got back in my apartment and locked the door. And I thought, Whew, wow, I got away from a sudden sex fiend or something. And about three weeks later, there, a friend of mine was on the cover of the paper has had been found chopped up and his head was found in a garbage can in new jersey and he was last place he was seen was the place that i got drugged at and i thought oh my god that guy that was in my apartment i bet he was that serial killer because they said there's other guys that was so in the middle of all this or middle of aids middle of dropping dead it was some a serial killer going around going to bars to nice bars piano bars everything and hacking people up and the police were like yawn yawn who cared no didn't give a shit did not give a shit and i remember going through that and i thought well i my friend was murdered i was almost murdered because it turned out when they caught him i recognized them and i realized well that's was the guy and i thought god damn it's like every i'll put it this way you know, like I said before, like a slow code to somebody dying. 
the police did a slow code to us being hacked up, but a handful. It was kind of like, well, you're dying of AIDS anyway. Yeah, you know, they're kind of doing God's work here. Or it was kind of like a, what do you expect, you're gay? Truly. It was really a, very much an attitude of like, well, let me tell you something. When I would tell people my story, which I stopped telling, 100% of the people, whether my friends, my family, stranger, were, well, did you pick them up? What did you ask for? Did you bring them home? No, I'm in a bar and somebody friggin' drugged me, followed me home and pushed me in my door. I could have been in a racetrack. It didn't matter. Right away, jumping to me as the victim, asking for it or doing something very wrong. I'm like, you know, I really, I realized what women must go through when they're raped or something. It was just like, nobody hugged me. Nobody asked me how I felt. Nobody said, oh my gosh, that must've been frightening. Not one person. Nobody, zero. I, I, that shocked me because if somebody I knew came up to me and said, I was almost hacked to death by a serial killer and he killed somebody I knew, I would be, oh my God, are you okay? And I thought, that's so strange. And I kind of thought, well, maybe everybody has that same attitude as the police had, which is like, well, all right, well, no, it was down. You know, like, this is what happens to gay people. You die of AIDS and you get hacked up. And it was very interesting, very interesting. But that's a, that could be a whole nother podcast. It, it, Tony, it could. That's what's wild. I was thinking just how uh, darkly poetic that is. In the midst of this, like, thing killing, you know, gay men, this hunting men down there's also this killer who kind of becomes like like a yeah like a, a symbolic embodiment of AIDS almost in this way and, and the whole process kind of repeats itself you're kind of describing the slow coding by the police that is wild I don't know it's, it's insane yeah. I'm glad that you survived uh, I, I can't believe I actually cannot believe that in the midst of all this surviving you were already doing you also had to survive being hacked up potentially by a serial <laughs> killer that's not that's not a normal uh, path for most people uh, it just only uh, it just kind of underscores how uh, incredible your ability to stick to life really is honestly like <laughs> I want to copy like, everything you do <laughs> like you pull we're going to get to a point where we can joke about that and say, well, it's your fault for having rosy cheeks. What were you know, you expecting? Well, he's not going to come and squirt some, uh, some, some kind of syringe in your drink and go after you. You, you looked well, and I'm, and I, I did watch the whole documentary again. I want to emphasize for the listeners, uh, uh, this, you know, since, since you've included this, Tony, um, that, uh, it's, it's really a fantastic brand new documentary. It's a 2023 release on HBO documentary documentaries and i paid 10 bucks to get hbo max for a month and and you know it was definitely worth it i watched it end to end about four or five times um and i don't want to take anything away from all of the eyewitnesses and from the structure of the um the history that the documentary team showed i think it's it's a a, a very much a, a level and ode to um another insult to injury kind of in the midst of act up which had a very noble mission and they were very, very, um, they manifested their message. They didn't, they didn't think about it. They didn't fuss about it. They went out and did it. Um, but that was kind of overshadowing this. It sounded like, you know, there was, there was so much death and dying in the community. And then this tragedy begins to slowly catch fire, a person here, a person there, a person there. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful documentary. I recommend, uh, that you guys watch it. It's it's uh, it's available right now. 
and it gets back to what I was saying to pull it. And these were young, young filmmakers, young, younger people. There was nobody even near my age involved with this. And I, I'm so grateful to the younger people because it was left up to, you know, my generation. None of this would be recorded or cared about. So I really appreciate your interest, your curiosity, your willingness to take the time. And just like the documentary makers that produced that for, for HBO, I, I was so impressed with their tenderness and your tenderness, just the tenderness and the respect and being treated so well and just the, the way it was all approached. It, I'm really glad I lived this long to see this from my fellow citizens, my fellow people, my fellow men. It's like, it feels very healing. Just the curiosity alone is healing because it's like, oh, somebody cares, finally. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm uh, profoundly moved. I'm struck by how every anecdote that Tony has shared has like a lesson, like multiple lessons, but really profound lessons in like everything you've shared. <laughs> I'm processing, I guess, my, my answer to you, Nick. I'm processing, but I, I am really moved by everything I've uh, I've heard today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, it just, I'm just, it's just an experience. And it's one that you can't forget. And it's important, and it was, it's never really been my focus. Like I've talked more in this past, you know, couple of hours with you, you know, about it than I probably have, you know, in years and decades or whatever. So it's very concentrated, um, and it's it's like I, I think I said in the beginning. I'm glad to share it because any first of all, anybody who asks that's interested, I'm so it's a rarity, you know. Even like my my gay friends now, I have young gay friends. You know, through my husband, he works with people that are young in their 20s and 30s. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. They don't care. They don't care what it was like. They don't. It's what's on Instagram. Or I used to be very interested in like the history of like my gay fellows. What was it like when you were going to the bars in the 50s? Or what was it like? I mean, we used to have, had an old gay bar in Long Island. It was there since the 1920s. And they was men in there that had been there in the 20s they were like in their 80s <laughs> i mean it's true and you would talk to them and they would just tell you about stuff and you know yeah but 
I don't see that. I don't. I very few people have ever inquired to me as a, a mature gay man. You know, what was it like, or what have you been through? So it's nice to have somebody interested in it, just to record the history because it was it was a time. You know, I, I want to say one more thing about my my what I went through through all this time, like the eighties and whatever. This is such a trite thing, but it's not. I would have friends, you know, everybody loves Betty Davis and everybody loves this. And it'd be like, I couldn't watch Dark Victory where she dies at the end. I couldn't watch, I could not go to Angels in America. I couldn't, I couldn't watch. I've never seen the movie Philadelphia. I couldn't, I couldn't use that. I, that was not any form of entertainment to me. It was none. And then, you know, we were talking before when I took that combination, that triple combination, and I started coming back to life. It was probably five or six years later that I watched Dark Victory because it was, and I was so happy that I could watch it and not feel like at the end that was actually me. It was like going to happen that night to me or I was going to die. It's such a weird thing to, to be important, but it was important that I, like parts of the arts were available to me again. You know, I had to cut myself off from some art because it was too painful. And now it's not. So I, I'm really grateful to live long enough to have that pain removed. Uh, to, it feels more normal. Tony, uh, first I want to just like thank you. Yeah, I, I am interested in your story. I appreciate you sharing it. I think it's a shame that people are not as interested in history in general now. But I think there is a change, uh, particularly around like, the AIDS crisis, because of what we've been through with COVID and there the strange parallels that we we do see on a kind of a systemic level or as a at a kind of a thematic level, uh, I do see that changing. So hopefully, uh, I have no doubt there's going to be interest in in your story. I want to tell you actually what I feel like I've taken away here. Well, first of all, you seem like a really intuitive person. Uh, when you say that you like felt when you were zero converted or when you felt the impact of the the triple the the, the cocktail, I believe mm -hmm. like I totally believe you. I I you uh, have a, a quality of observance to you. You seem to take in life and you have a commitment to life. And I think what I've learned and I think what should be highlighted is uh, you you listen to your intuition. And I think a lot of the message of media today is to tell people to ignore their intuition. And all through the story as you're talking, there were things that you noticed and you could discern uh, that you felt inside that maybe were contradictory to what the other people would think or, or believe, but you followed that, uh, you followed information, you didn't, uh, you know, put yourself into a, in a isolation chamber, you you listened to like the resources that were available to you. And I think like between those two information and like intuition, you really said like, a mindset like I think the importance of a mindset really came through to me in your story that you refused to accept like the fate that was going to be that was almost certain right you believed in being the exception and I think that's such a powerful thing like it, it came true right you did it you proved it you were the exception in in so many ways and so I think that's really really powerful and I take that away from your story that whatever the situation is life or death or even smaller stakes believe you can be the exception and you and you can be like that's that's what you've taught me here today and i just really appreciate it um i feel like the phrase choose life is like kind of cheesy or kind of like cliche or whatever but you did you chose life right and, you, and i'm grateful that you did and it makes me want to double down on my commitment to life you know so i feel like this was just a very powerful uh story that you shared and i just feel very very grateful you know to you for for sharing it with us thank you very much thank you i appreciate that well, I'd like to um, offer a couple of thoughts. Uh, first, 
uh, as good time travelers, we want to turn to the past and say um, uh, thank you to all of the men and women who stood on the front line and uh, worked in some capacity during the onset of the uh, AIDS disaster, wherever you faced this in the world and at whatever point in the timeline. There may be a few very unique, uh, important uh, caregivers from the era who, who end up listening to this. So I want to really, we, we have been um, quite, quite free in our um, dissection of healthcare and the experience. Um, and there are many voices uh, that are important, including voices that I heard that at the time were like fingernails on the chalkboard of nurses and doctors being put on the five o'clock news and asked to give their candid opinion about the risks that they were facing in dealing with an AIDS patient. I saw their faces and and felt their human experience about the anxiety and the fear. Um, but what we really, really appreciate is, are those of you who did shine through some of these amazing exceptions like the ones that Tony encountered. So I wanted to, as, as a first thought, just say thank you to all of our practitioners from the era when this was such a hopeless and an awful experience. And um, who knows what future conversations we might engage with, uh, with Tony or Ed, uh, our other uh, special eyewitness uh, as we continue this series. You know, we may, we may have some people who want to chime in or correspond at least in response. Mm -hmm. The second, the second thought is um, I'd like to, uh, sort of focus on the future for a moment. And that's to our final, our third conversation in this series, our conversation with Ed, which was the next step. And the closure of this arc would be to have Ed and Tony join us together um, and let you guys um, enjoy from you know, as as peers to the era, uh, different different geographies, but but I think a lot of overlapping experiences um, come back, and we'll try to think of, and I think we also are going to want to revisit one of the heavier aspects of all of this, which is very difficult but very important to keep your eyes trained on because we use that magic phrase whistling past the graveyard. I think we do want to talk about again the topic of death and dying. When we're dealing with um, a long-term health condition, we're, we're not trying to come back and reinvent sentimentality about this pain and loss. We've all, for those of us who were right there at ground zero or close after, we've, we've paid that price again and again the tax has been paid and we don't need to keep um you know wringing our hands and and mourning these people we love them they can bring a tear to the eye but that's not the point really we want to bear witness to these two wonderful wonderful people and and gather selfishly you know mop up as much inspiration as we can from what their path taught them um and then try to bring that to bear um, in a meaningful way for people in the current day. So I think uh, people people need exactly this kind of hope. Um, and it may be a steel magnolia. You know, it's not a soft, warm, fluffy kitten. Uh, you know, I'll post some kitten posters pictures to make up for it, but um, it'll it'll need to really help us face this grown up stuff in a way that might make a difference. 
It might change your timeline. It might help correct something that started in your body that you might be able to take a hold of if you just grab the handle and, and grip it and rip it. We're here to really get to the tools and we need to apply those tools to the current challenges. Mm. I like that. Very well said, Nick. Uh, you know, before Tony, we were talking about just like the, I guess the, the arc of history or whatever. I, I do think there's also a, a third or further downstream benefit, which is just whoever comes after us. It's not the main motivation for me. I don't really care as much about like my place in history. It's not something I think about uh, at all. I think people focus on it too much. In fact, sometimes, but I do think, you know, to your story about Dr. Lincoln, like she wasn't thinking about you. Of course, she didn't know about you or anything that, or, or AIDS or anything. I mean, she was uh, conducting her, her medicine or her, her practice in the 1930s, but there was this strange relation right there is this kind of like um impact that we can't even uh, gauge and i think that's an important uh, consideration as well which is that who knows what 100 years from now this this little conversation uh might bring somebody you know it's true and i always thought you know think about it i, I looked her up like she was like one of the first female physicians and she was like you know very well known in her time because she was such an oddity and and i thought wow it was, took a woman you know it was a woman who, who 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 came up with treating tuberculosis successfully and then in the end her her theory was used to treat hiv and i thought well there's a great story and i always wondered i thought you know i wonder because she was a woman maybe like she was taught to bake and she learned she knew like you needed different risers to make a cake you needed baking powder and baking soda that's what maybe maybe like why was it a woman what all these male doctors there's a handful of women. How come it was her? And I thought, I bet you it's because she knew how to bake or she knew how to cook. You know, like she thought outside of the box of the men back then. You know, like, I don't know, it just, it, it really intrigued me, um, the possibilities, you know, and that's like the, the woo part of it for me because, like, again, it, ha you know, it's happening to me. It happened to me and the, all the coincidences. And my, my father used to talk about the wonderful woman doctor who took care of him. And, and the, he always talked about it very warmly. I mean, my poor dad, his best best memory was he got toast on Christmas. And the day my father died, he had toast every morning with four pats of butter on it. Like he was a king. It was mm, amazing. It really butter. was amazing. Yeah, exactly. It was like he, could, he couldn't get any happier. And it, was, it always touched me, even as a little kid. And he said it with no irony. Because, you know, it was like, oh, what's your best memory? He said, oh. I got toast with butter on Christmas day. And you know, even when you're little and stupid, you get that, you get the depth of that. Hey, you know, here's a great quote too that got me through a lot. Emerson, give me health and a day and I will make the pomp of emperors seem ridiculous. And I have to tell you, when I got my healthy days back, I really, really, to this day, I walk around like I'm an emperor, like I have the world because I have my health and I have this day. And it really is that simple. And, and you realize that's, that's what can make you an emperor. That's what can make you everything. And because there was so many days, guys, months, maybe even years that I was so not well, so sick. That I couldn't leave my. I remember I didn't leave my apartment for so long. I'll go back to the shoes that I mentioned. 
it was so long that I didn't leave my apartment that when I finally left and I saw that shoe store, styles had changed completely. I didn't under, I didn't recognize any of the shoe styles at all. And hairstyles had changed. That's how long I was sick and, and just cloistered. So I really, really appreciated that quote because like I finally had health and day and I was the pomp of an emperor walking around and yeah that's another that's another takeaway and I still I have to remind myself of that because now I'm aging and it's like you know I'm gonna die you know old age or something and I'm like okay keep that in focus you know we still have health and day like tomorrow I could not have my health and I'm not gonna be pompous certain you know I'm not gonna be running around so anyway mm -hmm. but I wanted to get that in I know you'll edit a lot of this Oh, no, that all the good stuff. That was great. Yeah, that was great, Tony. Thank you.